If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Once, for instance, when Richard was uh, in a battle against him, he was observed to fall off his horse and Saladin sent him another one as a generous gesture. That was John Mann talking about Saladin's relationship with Richard the Lionheart. They thought it was disgraceful that particularly Christabel, as a middle-class woman, was engaging in such unladylike and rowdy behaviour, spitting at a policeman. It was unheard of. And that was June Purvis on public and press reactions to the suffragettes. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, as well as, we believe, the best-selling history magazine in Cardigan, New Brunswick. Available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of April 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with John Mann. John is a historian and writer who's written books on Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun, among other subjects. His latest book is a biography of Saladin, the 12th century Muslim leader who famously battled the Crusaders and seized Jerusalem from them. John has written an article about Saladin's leadership qualities in our April issue, and I had a chance to speak to him recently to find out more. I began by asking him what had inspired him to take on Saladin for his latest biography project. Well, my background is in uh, Mongolian studies, the Mongol Empire, and uh, I had written about uh, how the Mongol Empire impacted the Middle East. And I was interested also in the idea of leadership and where the Mongols found their drive, and it lies in the vision and leadership of Genghis Khan. And I thought, I I wondered if there's um, an alternative, a, a sort of a parallel on the other side, and came up, of course, with Saladin, who's considered a, a hero by the Muslim world and is also um, a great leader in his own right. So I thought, well, uh, it, would be, it would be interesting to have a look at the the other side. And that's what drew me initially to him. And for those of our listeners who, who may not know too much about Saladin, could you just briefly describe who he was or why he was so important? Well, he uh, comes along just after the Crusaders first take Jerusalem in the uh, around the, the, the turn of the 12th century, around about 1100. Um, and the world that he grew up in was one where the Crusaders had, in effect, invaded the Middle East. And it was his great vision to unify Islam and drive them back into the sea. It's an incredibly important time in the Middle East because uh, they were they were about to lose even more of their land. And it was Saladin who 
actually managed to achieve this monumental task of, of unifying this central part of Islam and um, reclaiming Jerusalem. Didn't quite drive the Crusaders into the sea, but he very nearly did. Oh, what do you think it was? I'm sure there are quite a few things, but what, what, what qualities made him such an effective military leader? He was a great strategist and uh, tactician. But I think his major achievement was to put into effect what we call soft power. He was he his his first task was to unify not only the the, the two great sects of Islam, Sunni and Shia, but also the rival um, leaders who were in control of the cities that he needed in order to unify that part of the world. And so he he could only do it by being persuasive. It's no good trying to conquer and kill those who you're going to have to bring aboard as um, allies. And he was extremely good at that. He was generous in the way that he treated people. He negotiated. He took advice. He took criticism. And it took him a very long time to do it. But his major achievement was that he did bring together Sunni and Shia, Syria and Egypt, and all the various sub-elements of those two empires. And how did he relate to the Crusader states? Because one thing that's interesting about Saladin is that he's, he wasn't always sort of purely antagonistic towards them. Uh, no, by this stage, of course, they've been there for a um, good part of a century. And there was a, a very good working relationship in some respects between the Crusaders and uh, the Muslims. His character came over in the way that he treated the Crusaders. He didn't treat them as automatically as barbarians to be killed. He wished to negotiate in order to drive them against each other, if you like. There were a lot of rivalries involved on both sides. And he was able to exploit this. Um, and uh, he, he really only became extremely um, vicious in the way that he treated them when he was betrayed. That is when the Crusaders broke their promises. There was one character, one particular character called Reynald of Chatillon, who owned a castle called Kerak down in the southeast of Crusader territories. This is the, really the gateway to the Gulf of Aqaba. And this man was a, a notoriously treacherous in the way that he dealt with the Muslims. And he broke his promises so many times that Saladin swore to kill him personally, which he was finally able to do after the Battle of Hattin in 1187. How did he compare to perhaps his most famous rival, the English king Richard the Lionheart? They seem to have admired each other. Richard I was, uh, was determined to take back Jerusalem and um, did not quite manage it. Also, Richard was a hero in his own right, um, and Saladin treated him with remarkable generosity when he had a chance to do so. Once, for instance, when Richard was uh, in a battle against him, he was observed to fall off his horse, and Saladin sent him another one as a generous gesture. And I think that it was uh, the, the two of them certainly would have got on had they met. They, they didn't, in fact, meet, but came extremely close to it. What view did the Crusaders as a whole hold of Saladin? Because I guess generally they had quite negative views of the Muslims they encountered. You'd think that uh, they would despise the man who had taken Jerusalem off them and almost um, defeated them totally. But in fact, 
there was a peculiar logic to, to behind the way that they regarded him. He was regarded as something as a, a of a Christian monke, a sort of a, a, a he should have been a knight, but because of his generosity of spirit, um, but happened to be a Muslim. And the explanation for this was that the Crusaders, since God should have been on their side, but clearly wasn't in this respect, um, they seemed to regard Saladin as the scourge of God. Somehow he had been sent as God's punishment against the Crusaders because they hadn't fulfilled their obligations, their obligations being to be uh, generous knights and to be good Christians. And clearly in the way that they'd acted, uh, they had failed in some respect and and that um, Saladin was God's punishment. So therefore, it was okay to regard him as, as, a, as a generous-hearted hero. And that's the reputation that he carried with him throughout the Middle Ages and indeed into the modern world. And how did Saladin treat religious minorities in areas that he ruled over? Well, not viciously at all. Uh, his job was to rule those areas in peace for as long as possible. And he treated them with great generosity. The only ones that he could not bear, and nor could anybody else, were the assassins. The assassins had uh, set themselves up as uh, sort of 12th century, 13th century extremists and would kill anybody, Shia or uh, Sunni, whom they disapproved of from their base in the castle in, in Iran and also from another castle in Syria. And the only way to deal with them was either to defeat them totally, which proved to be impossible, or to isolate them. And that was the tactic that Saladin opted for. So when you say the assassins, we're talking here about a specific kind of ethnic group. Oh, they're talking about the um, those who um, came out of Egypt originally, and their belief was that there was a hidden imam, a mahdi, who was going to come out of nowhere and conquer the Muslim world and the, much of the rest of the world as possible. And they set up an extreme um, form of Islam, which rather like modern jihadi fighting, rather like IS actually today, um, their purpose, their aim in life was to kill everybody who set themselves against them. And that meant uh, those who had a rather more, a softer, a more humanist interpretation of the Quran. So they would send from their castles assassins out in two or three to kill those of whom they disapproved. They were called assassins um, because uh, they were actually Ismailis. It's a, it's a sect of a sect of a sect. It's really horrendously complicated if you look at the background. But they were called assassins because the assumption was that they could only have been driven to such insane acts by uh, taking hashish. And they are hashishin, the people who smoke hashish. That was the name given them by um, their enemies, both crusader and Muslim. And they were finally destroyed by the Mongols, when the Mongols came in uh, after Saladin's day. But it took an invasion force of well over 100,000 to finally crush their castle in Iran and put them, out, put them out of work completely. So Saladin's obviously a very remarkable figure. How much of that do you think he owed to his childhood and his upbringing? Well... It's impossible to say in, in detail because there were no records of his childhood. But there were a number of things in his background which were in his favour. One was that he had a seems to have had a very secure relationship with his father. His father was a mentor who brought him along. He also had an uncle 
called Shekuch, who was a great fighter. And uh, his men respected him tremendously. And he also supported Saladin. But the major mentor was a local ruler called Nur al-Din, who ruled in Damascus and had aspirations, precisely the same ideals as Saladin, which was to unify Islam and drive the crusaders into the sea. And this was the vision inherited by Saladin. So from his childhood, he had, I think, a great feeling of security in a strange way, despite the fact that the Muslim world was divided and the Crusaders were just across the border. But emotional security, which gave him a, a basis to evolve, if you like, develop a sense of a vision of where he should be going in life. And that combined with his character is what was really behind his greatness. And how was he able to come to the forefront of the Islamic world in this way? Because he wasn't born a king, was he, or anything like that? No, he wasn't. He was brought on by his father and his uncle and then Nur al-Din in Damascus. And his big break was to be sent off to, to persuade the Egyptians to come on board in the battle against the Crusaders. Now, the Egyptians were um, not Sunni. They were Shia mostly. And when Saladin landed there with his uncle, he was in a subsidiary position, but was able to move up the ladder, the hierarchy, if you like. Uh, his uncle eventually died and he was placed in a position of authority by Nur al-Din. He, in effect, staged a coup d'etat in Egypt. And this became the launching pad for his own ambitions, for him to return to Syria, link up Syria and Egypt, and thus uh, unify the Islamic world, the central part of the Islamic world. One thing that certainly in the article you wrote for us was interesting about Saladin is the fact he, unlike almost other rulers, didn't seek to personally enrich himself. This was a remarkable thing about, I mean, it's a great aspect of um, of top leadership. Um, Genghis Khan had the same facility as well, that there was a possibility of great wealth, but he didn't take it for himself. Genghis gave it to his companions. Saladin used it for jihad, for the holy war against the crusaders. He also used it, of course, in his campaigns against other Muslims um, with the purpose of bringing those Muslims aboard as, as allies, all of which was extremely expensive. But Egypt was absolutely vital to the whole series of campaigns that he undertook. After Saladin died, what happened to his work? And was it carried on by his successors? Or Yes, I should say that this business of austerity followed through right to the end. He died, in effect, a pauper. They say that there was scarcely anything in his treasury. His treasurers were uh, in despair at the way that he kept on giving away his, his own personal wealth. And when he died, he had virtually nothing to his name but, but his shroud. Uh, he had no estates. He didn't own any villages, which was the, one of the usual prizes given to generals. He had no possessions to speak of. And this was one of the most remarkable things about him and also one of the things that contributed to his legacy. Now, you'd asked about his what happened to after his death. He really had no real successors. Islam did not remain as unified as it should have done. The Crusaders were not completely driven into the sea. They kept toeholds in the Middle East for a, a, another century or so and were finally driven out by the Egyptians, the Mamluks, the, the leaders of Egypt. Um, so as far as Syria was concerned, there really was nobody to follow on from him. How is Saladin viewed in the Middle East or how has he been viewed in the Middle East in more recent times? 
Well, after he died, other dynasties took over in Syria, uh, Mesopotamia, and Egypt. And he was the nature of of succeeding dynasties is that they tend to suppress previous rulers. So in China, certainly uh, in this case, because Saladin was pretty much forgotten or um, put into the background by the successive dynasties. It was, was after, after all, the Mamluks of Egypt who finally drove out the Crusaders and also, incidentally, the Mongols, which was a tremendous achievement. They the ones who stopped the Mongols at, uh, in Palestine in 1261. And this was considered their two great achievements, which Saladin would have been extremely envious of. And as a result of that, he went into the background pretty much until the late 19th century when he was resurrected as a nationalist leader um, against the colonial powers. And the the first ones to do this was, was the ruler of Turkey. Um, and he was much admired uh, for political reasons by uh, Wilhelm II, Kaiser Bill, the First World War uh, leader. And he was then taken up yet again when nationalism came to the fore under NASA. And he has been, Saladin's been, been a hero for, for nationalist leaders ever since the Second World War, firstly by NASA and then by the Assad regime in, in Syria. What his current position is, it's very hard to discover because, of course, I, I wasn't able to go to Damascus for obvious reasons. And the current Assad, I don't think, will be looking back to Saladin. On the other hand, there is Saladin's statue and his mausoleum in Damascus and their great tourist drawers. And so if ever there is peace again, no doubt he will re-emerge. Do you think that the people who are claiming to emulate Saladin in the Middle East today, are they genuinely following his legacy or do you think they're using it more as a kind of propaganda exercise? Oh no, it's a propaganda exercise. Um, there's very little, I mean, there is a vision of Islamic unity, which everybody talks about and it is more on in the breach than the observance. I mean, IS do not refer to him. He's not a, a, an Islamic figure in that respect, and not an extremist Islamic figure. He was far too generous for that. But as I say, um, the Assad's the Assad father certainly looked to him, and there have been films about him. He's, his reputation rides high amongst the, the non-extremist Muslims. How do you think Saladin compares to some of the other great figures of his age? You mentioned that you've written about Genghis Khan before. How could you compare him to some of the figures like that? Well, I think he does compare. There are aspects of his leadership which apply today, and that is the, particularly his talent for persuasion, his lack of personal, he had no desire to gain personally. He was a very austere, and he was extremely willing to share suffering with his men. In fact, he almost killed himself as a result of being on a campaign too much. He became extremely ill at one point and, and almost died. And there are, most leaders would tend to acquire wealth and to keep themselves apart from such uh, such dangers. I think it made him a pretty remarkable figure then and also a, a model in many ways for leaders today. That was John Mann. Saladin, The Life, The Legend and the Islamic Empire will be published in the UK in a couple of weeks' time by Bantam Press. In the US, it will be available for the Kindle from the 23rd of April. And as I mentioned in the introduction, John has written a piece on the leadership secrets of Saladin for our April issue, which is now on sale. This month's magazine also contains articles on Richard the Lionheart, the court of Elizabeth I, 
Medieval Immigrants and Gallipoli, among other things. You can get hold of it now in all good news agents and, of course, digitally. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. A story written by Queen Victoria when she was 10 years old is to be published for the first time. The Adventures of Alice Lascelles, a tale of a girl sent to boarding school against her will, was written by the future monarch in a red notebook as an exercise in English composition. It was later stored in the Royal Archives at Windsor Castle, where its existence was known only to a select few, the Telegraph reports. The story, which features a wicked stepmother and a dog named Frisk, who eats buttered toast, will be published on the 8th of June. The author will be billed by her full name, Alexandrina Victoria, aged ten and three quarters. A royal spokesman said, We think Queen Victoria wrote this story when she was just coming up to her 11th birthday. It's a pretty long story to have been written by someone who was only ten and three quarters, but Victoria loved writing. She kept a journal or diary from the age of 13 and wrote in it every day. You can see that even when she was a child, she was someone who loved words. In other news, Neil McGregor is to step down as director of the British Museum. Having joined in 2002, McGregor has been credited with transforming the museum into one of the world's most visited attractions. Visitor numbers have increased from 4.6 million a year to 6.7 million. McGregor's achievements include the museum's History of the World project, which told the world's history in 100 objects, and included a 100-part series on BBC Radio 4. McGregor said the role had been the, quote, greatest privilege of my professional life. Meanwhile, the uniform of senior Nazi Hermann Goering, who founded the Gestapo and was commander of the German Air Force, has gone on sale for £85,000. The sweat-stained outfit, which was purchased by John Cabello at auction from a Swiss collector, is being sold at Devon Parade Antiques, Plymouth. Cabello, owner of the antique store, said at first the uniform was believed to have been a copy of Goering's uniform that would have been used only as a display model. It was not until Mr Cabello began examining the wear and tear on the uniform in detail that he concluded it was actually worn by the Nazi. Cabello said... Goering was hugely overweight and had a tendency to perspire a lot. That would explain the profusion of sweat in the tunic. The stress levels on the tunic's folds, coupled with the strain on the brooches of the tunic, show it was worn by someone overweight. This also proves it was worn for a long, long time by someone who was fat enough to cause it to stretch and wear. Jewish leaders have opposed the sale of the uniform, with Jonathan Arkush, Vice President of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, describing it as, quote, repellent. Mr Arkush suggested the uniform should be burnt. Thanks for that, Emma. Now, for anyone who's wondering about the reference to Cardigan, New Brunswick earlier, I'd like to read out a message that we recently received from Ona de Burr, who listens out in Canada. Ona writes, My wife has subscribed to History magazine for years, and we also listen to the History podcast during all our drives together. Each time the podcast starts, just after you say, we're the UK's best-selling history magazine, I always add, and the best-selling history magazine in Cardigan, New Brunswick, and my wife always smiles and rolls her eyes. We live in Cardigan, and I know the magazine is the best-selling here, because Cardigan only has about ten households. 
With my wife's birthday in a few weeks, I wonder if you would add that line to one April podcast as a surprise for her. Well, Ona, I hope you heard that mention earlier, and Sandra, I hope that's made your birthday extra special. In 1928, British women were finally granted equal suffrage with men after more than 60 years of campaigning. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Professor June Purvis to find out more about the group of women who became known as the suffragettes and the lengths that they were prepared to go to in order to win the vote. When did the, the suffragette movement, when, you know, when did it first all sort of start? Uh, well, I think you've got to distinguish between the suffragette movement and the suffragist. So we use the general term suffragist to refer to suffragettes and suffragists. So it's normally um, the women's suffrage campaign is normally seen as beginning about 1865 when John Stuart Mill presented a petition to Parliament um, to bring in a bill to bring in women's suffrage. And you find, after, although he was unsuccessful in being able to do this, you find that small groups of women got together to form women's suffrage societies. Okay, I mean, I mean, how much support did that have? Um, you know, that's quite, that's quite a long time before um, you know the suffragists that perhaps we're more familiar with, um, you know, started their their campaigns. Yes, I mean, I think we've always got to remember that it was nearly forty years before the Women's Social and Political Union was founded in 1903, which is the grouping that we usually call suffragettes. So I think it's very important to remember that, that people had been, women, I should say, women had been campaigning for 40 years. They'd been campaigning peacefully to get the parliamentary vote and there'd been no result so what was the difference, um, you know, in the, the very early um, 20th century, the sort of 1903, what was the difference between that, that campaign and the, the one that had preceded it? Yes. So um, the biggest group in the 19th century that campaigned for votes for women was the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, or the NUWSS, led by Millicent Garrett Fawcett. And they believed in constitutional legal methods of campaigning, such as writing to your MP, going to Parliament and talking peacefully to MPs, trying to make contact with various influential figures in the government and use methods of persuasion. So it was constitutional, it was legal, nothing untoward. And then, as you probably know, in 1903, the Women's Social and Political Union, or WSPU, was founded. And their motto was deeds, not words. So they decided that, that you know, peaceful means hadn't had much success, so they were going to use other, other methods. Yes. Um, in the 19th century, what the campaigners there had relied on was asking a member of parliament to produce to produce or introduce, I should say, introduce a private member's bill that may, for example, be a women's suffrage bill. So that was the main news that they, main means that they used, and that at all wasn't successful. So from 1903, after the WSPU was founded, the main strategist there was a Christabel Pankhurst, daughter of Emmeline. And she thought trying to get women's suffrage through private members' bills was a useless tactic. And she thought it was only a government measure measure 
that would bring in women's suffrage, which is why they adopted tactics that would put pressure on the government to bring in a government bill for women's suffrage. And what were these these tactics that you, that you mentioned? Right. Um, in the early years of the WSPU, they tried the peaceful means of campaigning, and they often campaigned with the independent Labour Party members. So they adopted a lot of the more radical means of the socialist movement at that time, um, speaking at trade union meetings, speaking at wakes in the north of England, standing on a street corner, uh, standing outside factory gates and trying to persuade people to support women's suffrage. Now, that didn't work. And so in 1905, Christabel Pankhurst, along with a working class friend of hers, Annie Kenny, they asked the question, will the government give votes to women at a meeting at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester? And of course, their question was ignored. And they were roughly pushed outside of the hall where Christabel had planned to spend prison in spend prison that night in prison that night and what she did was commit the technical offence of spitting at a policeman and that was regarded as a um, an obstruction and both her and Annie were arrested and taken to prison they appeared in court next day and they were given the choice of a fine or go to prison well they both chose to go to prison and what sort of response did they get from from the public for for this action? Well, all the newspapers took it up, which is exactly what they wanted. The the local press, the Manchester Evening News and other local Manchester newspapers reported it in full. The Times took up the story, the Globe took up the story, and they were condemned. They thought it was disgraceful. But particularly Christabel, as a middle-class woman, was engaging in such unladylike and rowdy behaviour, spitting at a policeman. It was unheard of. And that was even women as well, so they didn't really get much support then from other women? Well, no, that, that's not, not strictly true. I think, don't forget, the press was male-controlled at the time, and, and they were male editors and a lot of male reporters, so it was... A lot of it was seen through male eyes. But what happened was, because it was taken up in the press, this arrest of women going to prison for the vote, in fact, it encouraged women to come to the WSPU and to join that organisation. OK, I mean, in the, the, the first meeting of, of the WSPU, that, that took place in, in Manchester, didn't it? Yes, yes, it was founded on the 10th of October 1903, um, 62 Nelson Street, Manchester, so it was founded in the parlour, we think. And it was a Sunday. And Mrs. Pankhurst called to her house some socialist women, local socialist women who were members of the Independent Labour Party. The day before, on the Saturday, she said to the women, we've got to form an independent women's movement. Come to my house tomorrow and we will arrange it. And so there were about 10 of them there, probably, including... Christabel and Mrs. Pankhurst, and they decided on action on the women's question because they were tired of this 40 years of campaigning that women had had with no successful end. And it was that that led to, um, to the incident you just mentioned, is that, is that right? 
Yes, and it was that the you know, the fact that there'd been no results through peaceful campaigning, that they decided to be more assertive, um, so-called militant women. I mean, that word militant is quite interesting. I mean, what Christabel Pankhurst meant by that was that women had to put off, as she said, the slave spirit. Women had to be assertive. Women had to ask for the vote and demand it. Not, not just sort of whimper about it. How do they sort of decide on, on these actions? Because, you know, that was kind of the start, wasn't it, of quite a few different um, events that took place, you know, planned. Um, you know, how, how did things sort of play out after that first um, imprisonment? Yes, there was a first imprisonment. And then what's interesting about the WSPU and the suffragettes, of course, is that you had tremendous freedom to decide what tactics you used. Usually the broad tactics were set down by the leadership, but within that you had tremendous freedom to choose what you wanted to do. So one decision that, that was made by the leadership was to have regular processions to Parliament. And women would march through the streets, often with brass bands playing. The women would be dressed in white dresses and wear the WSPU colours of purple, white and green. And they would carry a banner to Parliament in which they asked for the parliamentary vote. They also held what they called women's parliaments, because don't forget at this time, the mainly, it was mainly liberal governments that were in power. They were all men. You know, you couldn't be a woman and be a member of parliament. So they were, they called them men's parliaments. So they set up their own parliament, parliaments where they debated women's issues. And then you had a whole pile of tactics that the suffragettes often introduced themselves. Did the suffragettes, did they, you know, were there those who disagreed with perhaps using sort of more violent tactics? Well, um, yes, I, yeah, I think if those who disagreed with the more violent tactics, but don't forget that the more violent tactics really didn't come in until 1912. And why was that? What what, what caused that, do you think, that change? Well, um, 1903, the WSPU was founded. By 1912, nine years of, of relatively peaceful campaigning, still no results, and Mrs Pankhurst felt that they had exhausted argument. What were they to do? But even from 1912, when more violent tactics came in, such as um, destruction or damaging public and private buildings, even then you still had constitutional tactics going on. So the more violent methods that were introduced were things like destroying mail in post boxes, um, cutting telephone wires, um, burning votes for women on the golf greens. You can imagine how popular that was with the men, yes. Um, and setting fire to empty buildings. But don't forget, through all of that, the aim was never, ever, never to threaten adult life. So Mrs. Pankhurst insisted, insisted on that, that no human life was ever to be endangered. So it was damage to property because they felt that the government valued property more than they valued um, the women's campaign and particularly the damage that was being done to women through imprisonment and especially through forcible feeding. Mm. I mean, that must have been an incredible shock to, you know, a fairly upright um, 
Edwardian society to have these sort of, like you say, middle class women, you know, as you mentioned, setting fire to, to post boxes and things like that. I mean, you know, how, how did people, um, how were they dealt with? Right. Well, it was a tremendous shock. But let me just say something. It wasn't just middle class women who were in, who were suffragettes. You had the whole range of the social class spectrum in there. So you had working class women as well um, in the movement. Um, well, you know, people were hostile, hostile towards them. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, they suffered ridicule. Um, and when they went to prison, of course, um, then they started to use the hunger strike as a tactic to force the government to release them. Well, when the hunger strike was first introduced in July 1909, it was introduced by Marius Wallace Dunlop, who was an illustrator. And the government didn't know what to do with her when she first went on a hunger strike. She was released after 61 hours of fasting. And the um, suffragettes thought, this is good, you know, we found a way to get out of prison. But of course, what happened was that by the end of September, that same year, 1909, they'd begun um, forcibly feeding them. And don't us ever forget just how gruesome and tortuous a process that was because these tubes were stuck down women's throats or up their noses. Often the tube was too wide. It might have been previously used on someone who was diseased or someone who was ill. And it was very difficult to clean the tubes inside. So the tubes were often dirty. And then you had this horrible greasy mixture pushed down youth um, through the tube. And of course, then it was roughly pulled out and you usually vomited up all the liquid that had been pushed into you. So if you read these accounts, and they're very moving to read these accounts of women who were forcibly fed, you know, they experienced it usually as a form of rape, like an instrumental invasion of the body. And because also it was accompanied by overpowering physical force, you were held down on the bed by ward dressers and then by a doctor who pushed these tubes into you. Um, It was seen as this form of, of rape. And it wasn't just the food that was being stuck into you. They felt as well it was the government's ideology. And did even that, did even that get any sort of sympathy with the press or, you know, with, with MPs? Oh, no, MPs often laughed at it. I mean, to his credit, Keir Hardy was a man who spoke up in... The MP, Keir Hardy, was a man who spoke up in prison for the suffragettes. And he um, scolded MPs for laughing at the women being forcibly fed. So there was um, a tremendous reaction against that. But by about end of 1912, beginning of 1913, you find there was a bit more sympathy coming in for the suffragettes. Do you, I mean, do you think that's just because they were just so determined and people were sort of recognising that they weren't just going to go away? Yeah, I think the death of Emily Wilding Davison on the 8th of June 1913 was a turning point in that because she had been forcibly fed. And that was that was at the Epsom Derby, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And to think that somebody had died, actually, in trying to get this thing called a parliamentary vote 
And as you know, she had a large funeral and we think it was probably the largest feminist gathering they've ever been in the country. Probably at least a quarter of a million people watched her coffin um, being taken through the streets of Manchester before it was taken on the train up to her home in Morpeth. I mean, there's there's a lot there's still a lot of debate, isn't there, over over her death as to whether she actually meant to die um, or whether she was you know trying to just trying to sort of make a scene or distract the horse. Um, what 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 are your thoughts on on it? Well, I think she was a risk taker, Emily, and she knew she was taking a risk, and I think she was prepared to die if it happened. That 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 is the way I look at it because if you read some of her previous letters and statements, she does say that the ultimate price of the suffragette is to be willing to die for the cause. I don't think she went deliberately to Epsom that day thinking I'm going to die because if you look at the things she had in her pocket, she had writing materials. Um, She had a notepad, um, a pen and some stamps indicating that she thought she would be arrested and then spend time in prison and be writing letters out to friends. But we never know. Um, We're only speculating about it. And don't forget as well, which is a point I think too many people forget, is that she was very religious. And so to commit suicide would have been regarded as a sin. And in those days, you couldn't be buried in a churchyard if you'd committed suicide. Um, So I think that would have weighed heavily with her. She always kept her Bible by her bedside and she she prayed regularly. Um, Do you think, I mean, how effective do you think um, the suffragettes were actually on on gaining the vote? Because, I mean, the First World War had a a lot to do with it, didn't it, in, in the end? Well, I mean, you know, this is highly debatable. People say, well, the First World War won Vib in the vote. I don't agree with that at all. I mean, if you look who got the a limited vote for women in 1918. It was only certain categories of women over the age of 30 who got the vote. For example, if you were a householder or a wife of a householder, if your property was of the value of £5 or more per year, and if you were a university graduate. So what the 1918 Reform Act did is that it gave the vote mainly to middle-class women who were likely to be married by the age of 30 and likely to be less radical than younger women. And it was the younger women, the single women often, the younger single women, who had worked in the factories during the war. So they weren't enfranchised with the 1918 Act. So I don't think you can argue that it was the war on its own at one women's vote. It was a factor. And the other second point I want to emphasize here is that the Pankhurst in particular did not abandon votes for women during the First World War. What they did was to change the tactic. And what they said was that if women engage in war work, then at the end of the war, the government will reward you with enfranchisement. So you've got that stream as well being very, very important during those war years. So did a new wave of um, of suffragettes kind of rise, um, you know, to, to kind of try and get the vote for, for those who, who weren't granted it in 1918? 
yes, that there were people in Britain then who who took the the flame forward, but not with such fervor as as before. I think I think women were worn out, and I think they were very disappointed with the 1918 Act. Some of them had felt they'd been betrayed, in fact, by the the suffrage leaders, because it was Mrs. Fawcett in particular who carried the flame, I think, for the vote during the war years, and she was much more ready to compromise on issues. So the, the heart sort of went out of it a little bit, did it? Yes, I think so. Mm. Um, I think one of the most sort of symbolic incidents um, was was at the National Gallery, wasn't it? In the, the Mary Richardson. Oh, Mary Richardson, mm. yes, yes, yes. Mary Richardson in early 1913 when she slapped the Rockaby Venus. Is that what you were thinking? Yes, that's right, yeah. yes. Yes, I mean, she's an interesting woman. Yeah. Mary Richardson, um, you know, she's one of the more militant. She was born in Canada and she slashed that painting. Do you know why she did it? No. No. Well, she's um, by 19, by January 1913, when she did that, Emmeline Pankhurst had been in and out of prison under the Cat and Mouse Act. And um, what Mrs. Pankhurst did, she went on hunger strike. She went on thirst strike and sleep strike. And that played tremendous havoc with her body. But she was never forcibly fed by the government, simply because they were afraid they might have a martyr on their hands. So Mrs. Pankhurst's house was in a precarious state by um, January 1913. And people, well, some of the suffragettes were afraid she might die. You know, she used to come out of prison looking in a dreadful state and being looked after by Nurse Pine in a suffragette safe house and she would be fed things like raw egg and milk, that sort of diet to, to, to get her back onto her feet again. So Mary Richardson was really irate about that, the way Mrs. Pankhurst, she felt, was being destroyed by an uncaring, heartless government. And she said, if they can behave like that towards a living woman, why should people look at this beautiful nude that was painted in a painting? Yes, and so that was why she she attacked the Rockaby Venus, so that men couldn't gaze at it when um, a beautiful woman, Mrs. Pankhurst, was being slowly murdered, she felt, by an uncaring government. Who would you say, um, you know, what individual would you say had, had the most impact on the movement if you had to pick, if you had to pick somebody? The most impact, I think, think was Emmeline Pankhurst. You know, she was a very charismatic figure. Um, she was fiery. She was passionate. She was determined. Um, she could have changes of mood. Um, she could be sunshine and showers. But she was a, a really great woman of, of the 20th century. There's, there's no doubt about that. And I think what she did was she, she shaped an idea of womanhood, which is quite modern in, in some ways, you know, that women should be assertive and demand their democratic rights, that they shouldn't be subservient and secondary. That was June Purvis, Professor of Women's and Gender History at Portsmouth University. And you can read a feature on the fight for women's suffrage in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned before, is out now. 
Okay, so that is pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about the Irish famine and the Battle of Gallipoli. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>